0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Rebecca Clark. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca.
1: Thanks, Richard. So happy to be here.
0: Rebecca is zooming in from Wisconsin, Green Bay, where she's lived for about seven years. She's in her 30s. She's been married nearly 10 years, has three kids active member of the church, has a degree from BYU, looking at grad school. Um, we're going to talk about OCD. Rebecca has had an OCD as long as she can remember, um, maybe 20 years. And so um, this will be a podcast with Rebecca bravely sharing her story. One of the things I like about this podcast is that she's been on this road for a long time, and I think it can help some of you that are just kind of figuring this out about yourself, or um, parents or other loved ones that are trying to see this and help others. And Rebecca has lots of different types of OCD. So, this won't just be kind of one story, and even how OCD kind of moves around at times. So, we said a prayer. We're just going to kind of get started. Um, thanks again for your courage to do this. Anytime someone opens up and has the guts to share their story. They've become my instant hero, Rebecca. So on behalf of all of our listeners, thanks for doing this. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: All right. Um, Well, as you said, I live in Wisconsin. I'm a mom of three kids, um, ages nine, six, and three. And so they definitely keep me on my feet. Um, um, I Also, my husband and I are founders of a nonprofit called Village Book Builders. When we bring libraries to developing countries, it's been a huge blessing that I've been able to travel to places like Malawi, Africa, and different parts of Mexico um, to to help with those. Um, I also am passionate about LGBTQ advocacy. My LGBTQ friends are some of the people that I admire most. And I've been grateful to be involved as an admin for Mormons Building Bridges and a leader in my local affirmation chapter, which is the Affirmation Chicago chapter as well as doing allies and appetizers, which I, I love. Oh, and one other thing, I love, love, love ice cream. So I could give me a carton of ice cream and I could probably pause off the whole thing if I didn't like make myself stop.
0: That is great. Um, I'd kind of forgotten your work at the, in the LGBTQ space. That's a wonderful chapter, the Chicago chapter. We've have had a couple people on already from that chapter and we've got Valerie Green um coming on next week or two that's part of that or group i think there you're not yeah. Your yep. you no, i Valerie. know her and
1: love her so wonderful. she's
0: wonderful um yeah just tell us some um, why you decided to come on the podcast
1: yeah it's a good question so i have had ocd my whole life of 32 years um, and for pretty much that whole life i've been very um private about it, um, rarely opening up to a few friends here and there, but for the most part, keeping it inside. Um, and, but I've been feeling the desire lately to want to open up. I think I have a desire to be able to connect more authentically with people. And I feel like the way to do that is to share my journey and, you know, be able to have people hear my story and, and me hear their story so that we can connect. Um, also, I have a desire to feel to help people with my story. I mean, I've I've been walking this road a long time, and um, I, I hope that there are people out there who, like you said, they're new to the journey or have children that are struggling, since I struggled even as a child, or you know, people that just want to understand. I hope to be able to, to lend some insight to that. Um, and actually, I was inspired because um, I listened to your recent episode with the Real OCD Club at BYU. Um, and as a former BYU student, I was super excited to hear about this club they're doing there. Um, I wish I had had something like that when I was there. And I think it's so wonderful they're doing that. Um, And it was fun too, because one of the club founders, Caitlin, um, is a friend of mine. She actually went on one of our Village Book Builder trips. So I met her in Mexico (laughs) as we were working on a library together. And at the time, I had no idea that she had OCD and she had no idea that I had OCD. Um, But we, at least I can speak for myself, I just adored her. thought she was awesome. and so it was fun to see what she's been up to with the real OCD Club. And, and I was inspired that, you know, I I really want to speak up more and see if there's ways that that I can help people with my story.
0: Uh that's cool. Um, that was a really good episode. That's episode three forty-three listeners. And we um on listen, learn and love dot org, if you go to that website across the toolbar at the top, one of the um toolbar notes is podcasts and if you pull down podcasts we have a whole section now there's so many podcasts we divided them into sections and there's a section on depression mental illness OCD so all these podcasts if you want to learn more about OCD and hear more stories in addition to Rebecca's Rebecca's will be there Um, that's a great place to hear other stories and not have to try to figure out which of the 350 podcasts are OCD related (laughs) Um, But thanks for just, you know, talk about, um, it's really brave what you're doing. Um, When did it kind of first show up for you? Talk about, you know, it sounds like since the beginning of time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) pretty much, pretty much. Um, For me, OCD showed up when I was about six years old, when I was in first grade, and my Um, My teacher called my mom and told her, called my parents and told them that she was concerned because in general, I was a teacher type of student, Um, you know, really obedient, really hardworking, um, that sort of thing. But she was having this problem where I kept getting up to wash my hands. We had a classroom sink um, in our first grade classroom and I just, she'd be teaching and I kept getting up to wash my hands. Um, And she had asked me to stop, but I just seemed like I couldn't stop. Um... And also she was concerned because I would, when I did my worksheets, I would write something and then thinking that it wasn't perfect, I would erase it. And then I'd write it again, still didn't feel perfect. So I'd erase it again. I do that over and over to the point that my papers would start to get holes in them. Um, and I don't think she knew what was going on. And my parents didn't know what was going on either. We didn't have a name for it and we wouldn't have a name for it for years. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you could go back and talk to your six year old self and um, have some wonderful conversations. That's 26 years ago, roughly. Keep sharing your journey. Um, yeah, six years So, old.
1: Um, several years later, when I was 11 or 12, um, is when, like, I had OCD that whole time and there were little ways that it would show up. But throughout my journey, there's been times when it's really spiked, when it's really been extra severe. Um, and the first time in my life when it was extremely severe was when I was 11 or 12. Um, and at that time, the main kind of OCD that I struggled with, um, was scrupulosity, which I know you've talked on the podcast about before. And I would struggle with things like I was so filled with anxiety and that's okay. So that's the thing with OCD for those who, who don't know how it works. You have the obsession, which is like something that a thought that keeps coming to your head that you are so, so anxious and scared about. Um, so in this case, I was so, so anxious about being righteous. And of course being righteous is a good thing, but OCD takes it to a whole nother level where it's just off the charts where you're like, I've got to be, I've got to be, um, righteous. And it just fills you with so much anxiety that you feel the urge to do a compulsion, which is the other part of OCD, which is an action that you do to try to relieve the anxiety. But of course you do the compulsion and for a little while it relieves it, but then the thought just comes back. The anxiety comes back. So you keep doing the compulsion to try to relieve it. And so when I was 11 and 12, I, I was scared to death of lying. And so like if my parents say, I saw my dad um, go down the stairs. And then my brother would come into the room and say, Hey Rebecca, have you seen dad? And I would say, I think he's gone downstairs. Maybe. So I added, I think, and maybe to everything I said during that time, just with the the overarching fear that maybe I'd accidentally lie. Um, Same thing with obedience. My mom would come in to tuck me in at night. I would confess to her all the quote unquote terrible things that I as an innocent kid had done, like brushing my hair when it was wet out of the shower instead of using a comb. I guess she told me not to do that. And so when I did, I felt so... Horribly guilty that I had to confess. And then, probably the most, um, the story that kind of illustrates where I was at that point the best, that's um, kind of a hard story for me to share because it's, well, you'll see why. <laughs> um, I was scared to death of not paying enough tithing. And I remember one day when I was probably 11, I was counting out the amount of tithing that I needed. And I'd figured out that I needed eight pennies to pay on the 80 cents. And I had those eight pennies in my hand, but there was a part of my brain that questioned, OCD is the doubting disease. So it doubted. I knew it was eight pennies. Part of me did, but part of me questioned, am I wrong? Am I counting it wrong? And if I am, then I'll be sinning because I won't be paying a full tithing. And so my mom tells me that I looked at her with just utter humiliation, because of course I know how to count, but so with utter humiliation, but also just utter fear and looked at her and said, mom, is, is this eight pennies?
0: Wow.
1: As so I needed that reassurance that I had counted it right because my OCD part of my brain just, just couldn't accept that, that, you know, maybe I had made a mistake with it.
0: I love you just sharing real examples. Cause I think that helps us all sort of go reflect about our own selves and others in our lives. And it helps us better pick up that. Um, I love that you said you want to do the compulsion. Do you have examples of, of the compulsions you do in this stage of wanting to be so righteous? Um, and is that I think you did say one you'd confess to your mother every night before you went to bed. Just other examples that come to mind, Rebecca, of the compulsions to sort of relieve the scrupulosity, and maybe even talk to our listeners about why the compulsions um, don't really solve scrupulosity.
1: Sure, sure. So um in the case of the being concerned about lying, the compulsion was to add maybe or I think onto everything. Um and you're right about the compulsion with the the um the obedience, the obedience obsession. Um the compulsion was was um to talk to to confess to my mom. Um another example is I became concerned about gluttony, so I was scared of overeating, not because of not because of gaining weight, but because I had heard the gluttony might be a sin, um, mm. and so there were times when I wouldn't eat very much um, for fear that I would take it too far and overeat. So that was the compulsion for me.
0: Those are great examples. Um, talk, just keep sharing your story more. Just, yeah, as, I think. And I'm sorry,
1: I just realized you asked you asked for thoughts on how um, how the compulsion doesn't help in the long run.
0: Is that right? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So the crazy thing about OCD is the compulsion helps you feel better for a little bit. It relieves that anxiety, but it's very short-lived. And in the long run, it actually makes it worse. Um, And I learned this later when I was in therapy at a much older age. I didn't know this at the time. and My parents didn't know it at the time, but Actually, for instance, when I was confessing to my mom, and of course, she's saying, oh, sweetie, you don't have to worry about that. Like, it's not a big deal. That was reassuring me. And for a moment, it made me feel better. But in the long run, it actually made me worry about it more because it it kind of like reaffirms that your fears are real, that you had a reason to be concerned to begin with. Um, same with like the, the tithing, like when she's confirming that, yes, of course, I have eight eight pennies, it's reaffirming that I needed that reassurance that I could have been wrong. Whereas I would find out later um, when I was much older that the best thing with OCD, with the help of a therapist who's trained in this, um, is to learn to live with the uncertainty. So going back, if we had known this at the time, and if we had had the help of a trained therapist, they would have told my mom not to tell me that that was eight pennies to say, you know, that's something you need to figure out. You might be wrong. You might be right. And I would have to learn to live with, I could be making a mistake, but in the short term, that causes tremendous anxiety. But in the long term, it lessens the amount of obsessions and compulsions you have because you learn that life is uncertain and that's okay.
0: That's great. It's really powerful. I would never have believed what you just said was the right thing to do until I've listened to all these stories about scrupulosity. It is fascinating for me because intuitively, as a parent, I would do the same thing your parent did, and as a bishop for in a situation where someone's confessing things they don't need to confess, I would over reassure them they don't need to confess so it's and whenever I hear these stories, I just go, Oh my goodness, and light bulbs go off in my brain about um how unusual scrupulosity is, and especially for people that are active and committed to their faith and very deeply committed attacks, the things that are most important to you. Um, Do you want to just keep sharing? I don't know if you want to talk more about scrupulosity or if you just want to talk about as you're aging up other OCDs or how things changed as you got older.
1: Yeah, I would, I love what you said about being aware as leaders. I think, you know, there were many times as a teenager that I would go to temple recommend interviews with my bishop and I was so nervous about it. I had anxiety about that, because I wanted to make sure I was telling the truth, wanted to make sure I was doing it, and I was like the perfect kid <laughs> like I didn't do you know anything abnormally wrong at all um and so I think it's really good for bishops and other leaders to be aware like if you're seeing someone who's coming to you and confessing the same thing over and over um for instance, then you know that's probably o c d and just be aware it's probably not a spiritual problem that's going on necessarily. it could be that it's it's just there their brain you know, having issues with, with the scrupulosity. And also one thing I'm super grateful for with my mom in that time um, that I think is a good example for parents is she knew something was wrong and my parents knew something was wrong, um, but they didn't know what it was. And at the time, internet wasn't even a big thing yet. Um, and so she wasn't able to just, you know, search and get answers. So she did a lot of research um, at the library, got lots of books and was able to discover obsessive compulsive disorder. And for me, it was, I remember her bringing these books home and she was reading them to try to help me and I wanted to read them. And at first she was super hesitant because she's like, wait, if you read these, is it going to give you ideas of more obsessions and compulsions to add on? Um, And I understand that fear, but thankfully she did let me read them. And I remember the utter relief that washed over me as a 12 year old kid going, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. There's a name for this. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one, Um, and it was so comforting to me. So I'm I'm so grateful for the the compassion that she had and the you know the work that she did to search out answers to help me.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. Um, yeah, just kind of keep sharing how things did things change as you got older, and I don't know if you want to talk about other types of OCD or how th- things you know how things got better. Just kind of this time between, you know, 12 years old and, you know, this 20 years between (laughs) that age and where you are now.
1: Right. So it's so funny. Like OCD can really shift. You talked about how it plays on what's most important to you. And in my life, it's played on things that are really important to me in that period of my life. And so, um, as I got older, I found that, I mean, I always had the OCD, but it wasn't quite as severe as it was at that point Um, into my teen years. I was a pretty normal teen kid involved in lots of activities, you know, good student and stuff. But there was always in the background, OCD was always there. Things were always going on. One of the main struggles I had was I was, you know, school was very important to me and doing well in school. And so I had a fear about, um, like losing a paper for my schoolwork or something else that I needed for school. So I remember in middle school and high school, I would check it's another kind of OCD is checking and counting. So I would check and count to make sure all the zippers on my backpack didn't come undone. So I wouldn't lose anything. Mm-hmm. Cause I had a backpack that had like five zippers on it. So throughout the school day, whenever the thought entered my head, Oh man, something might've fallen out of your backpack and then you lose, you wouldn't have your homework assignment or whatever. So throughout the day I would, count like one, two, three, four, five. Okay. They're all closed. And then a few minutes later, the thought would hit me again. What if something caused one to open? And so I would constantly be checking, but this was going on in the background as I lived a pretty normal life and nobody knew except for my parents that that something was going on with OCD. A lot of us get super good at hiding it because there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of misunderstanding. And so I didn't want people to know. So I would, you know, do my checking when nobody was looking and, and just live life um it wasn't and also through college like I had um some relationship OCD show up in a relationship I was in um I had checking just you know a lot of it was checking throughout that time it wasn't until I was married and had my first baby that I had another bout of where OCD went from being in the background to really coming to the forefront and being extra severe
0: Tell us about that.
1: So um, I got married to my wonderful husband Tyler when I was 22, and we had our first baby pretty quick. And we were pregnant within about four months, I think, of being married. Um, and so our our first child, Emma, was born um, just a month and a year after we got married. And of course, we we love her and adore her um, from the beginning. Though she hated sleep. And it makes me laugh now because she's nine and a half and she still hates sleep more so than even her younger siblings. She's always been the most difficult to get to sleep and still is. But um, as a baby, she did not sleep. She of course had the normal newborn stage of not sleeping, but that continued on and on. It wasn't until she was about 11 months old that she had her first time of sleeping through the night. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was rough, and even then, it wasn't like every night that <laughs> she was through. Wow. Like so. so, and, and you it was two about more kids. two. Weeks. Yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs> and you have two more kids.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's we 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 changed some stuff with that. <laughs> You'll learn, but um, I found that, and of course, I'd never experienced what this is like before. But I found that with my OCD, I needed to be able to have complete mental and emotional strength. I guess to live life, and when I was not getting sleep, I didn't have that mental and emotional strength that I needed. And so, when I was being woken up constantly, it caused my OCD to just go off the rails. It also, I also had postpartum depression come into the mix at that point. Um, And so, I had depression and and OCD both just going crazy. Um, And it got to the point where, like, I would. She would wake up and then I would try to go back to sleep, but I was so anxious that she was going to wake up again. And I didn't know when she would wake up again, that I would lie there having trouble going back to sleep, even when she was. Um, And so I, you know, was getting, I was getting no sleep. I also, um, as she got a little bit older, I found out that, you know, that they recommend often as babies get older, putting them on a schedule and that sometimes that can, if they're getting good sleep during the day, it can affect how they sleep at night. And so I was desperate to get sleep myself. And so I put her on a schedule to try to get her to sleep better. And I did find that it helped a little bit. So in my desperation to get more sleep at night, I became OCD-ish. I make OCD an adjective sometimes. (laughs) I think that, I don't know if anybody else does that, but I I I became OCD-ish about her sleep schedule. So like where I was planning to the minute, when I wanted her to go to sleep. Now, of course, I couldn't really control when she'd fall asleep, but I would plan to the minute when I was going to start her wind down to try to get her ready to go to bed. Um, and if there were things that got in the way of that, I would just be flooded with anxiety and just, you know, I just had to have it scheduled and had to have it perfect in hopes that maybe I'd be able to get some sleep that night. Um and to be honest, that was a point in my life where OCD really took control. Where most of my life people couldn't tell, but at that at that time in my life, if you had interacted with me on something that that um that touched on my baby sleep, like if you tried to schedule something with me where I was trying to schedule around my baby's naps, you would have been able to tell that something was was kind of odd, that I was ultra focused to an abnormal level on my baby's sleep schedule. Um, I also had checking go crazy because of course. What's more important to a new mom than their baby's safety? And so I had a lot of checking rituals that developed around making sure my baby stayed safe. Things like making sure that her swaddle was on just right so that it wouldn't suffocate her, even though it wouldn't. like I just, you know, because I was doing a good job with it. So it wouldn't, but I would check it and then, you know, have doubts, have the obsession that maybe... I did did it wrong and she was going to suffocate. So I'd recheck it. Same with the, and again and again, no matter how many times I checked it, I still wasn't sure that it was safe. And I would do the same with the doors. I would lock the doors at night, but then I'd have the doubt that it was really locked. I'd recheck it. I'd be staring at it, you know, trying to convince myself because part of my brain knew, that's a crazy thing with OCD is like, part of your brain knows that it's good. You know that you did it, but the other part of your brain still has that doubt. Like maybe I messed it up. So, no matter how many times I checked and rechecked, I still had the the fear of what if I didn't, what if it's wrong, and what if someone breaks it and hurts my baby
0: Wow that's painful and that's powerful You've, you this is a really good set part of the podcast Rebecca I, I've, no one's ever really named checking OCD is that I mean is that um did you name that or is that a common name that people um, would be recognized that have had the same challenges?
1: Um, It's it's a pretty common one. Um, you can check different things, but it is pretty common to have um checking doors, checking ovens, that they're off, that sort of thing. It, having fears that someone's going to break in or a fire is going to start. It's a
0: pretty common thing. I mean, I have some of that. I don't want to make this podcast about me, but I go pick up our company mail a lot and it's just in a box two stories down and in our office building, and I open it and I put my hand in, I pull all the mail out, and then I lock it. And as I'm going up the stairs, I think there's something still in there. And <laughs> I go back and there's nothing in there. And I re- as you're talking about this, I realize I have a little bit of that. I, when I close my garage at night on my car, I, I hear it go down. I can't actually see it go down. I hear it go down, but I, I go, I better just make sure it went down. And right. it kind of ends there. You know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time, It, but it's some of that. Um, so I resonate with that. What's the, to, and I think you've done this already, but explain the downside of having checking OCD to the extent you do and, and how you solve or manage that.
1: Yeah. So it's funny you should say that because I think, I think it's a continuum, right? Like I think we all have times when we do something and then they're like, wait, did I do that? And if it's something important, we might want to check. And I think some of us might have more of that than others. But in order to be clinically diagnosed as OCD, it has to reach a certain level. Like, I think I might be wrong on these numbers, but I think it has to impact your life where you're spending at least like one to three hours a day, maybe on it. Uh I might be wrong on those numbers, but it's a a certain level where it's significantly impacting your life. And it's hard to explain even the amount of anxiety that, that you have in that moment when you're, when you're locking it and relocking the door. Like, it's like, you almost feel like, you know, if I mess this up, my baby's going to be killed. And
0: that's honest.
1: I think I probably messed it up. Like it's this powerful anxiety that just floods over you head to toe. And you just, you get locked in where you can't stop doing the compulsion because you're never sure.
0: Um, And my example, you know, the, the left your mail in the mailbox or the garage door up is very different than your child. Um, So I, in this specter of this range, you know, even the worst case scenario of leaving the mail in, I just get it the next day, (laughs) but (laughs) you're thinking of really grave situations with that OCD relating to your child's safety. That's, It's brutal. Yeah. Um, That's tough. And my, my,
1: yeah. And at the time I wasn't in therapy yet. um, But my therapist now tells me that in order to work on something like that, you would start, you'd start small. So you wouldn't start with the um, compulsions and obsessions that cause you the most anxiety. You'd start with the ones that cause a little bit of anxiety. um, And before you move up to the harder ones. But what you do is called exposure and response prevention. It's part of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's the recommended treatment for OCD. And so what they have you do is take obsession and compulsion that are, you know, that cause you some, it would cause you anxiety not to do the compulsion, um, but it's not your highest level. (laughs) Um, And you don't, you have the obsession, you have the anxiety come to your mind but you purposely don't do the compulsion or if you're trying to start really slow and build up, you might do it, but do it changed. Like for instance, I had a certain order that i locked the doors in. Um, and I get stuck doing each one over and over, but I had that order. And so my therapist might have me switch up the order so I can still do it, but a different order. So anything you can do to kind of change up those because OCD, OCD wants everything to be exactly how, how it's scheduled. <laughs> so so anything you do to switch it up um, and then you build over time because what happens is as you get used to the, you know, at first you have tremendous anxiety from not doing the compulsion um, and it's, it's terrifying because you're thinking that thing that you're so afraid of is going to happen. But over time, your body, it's called habituation, your body habituates to that, to that feeling and that feeling doesn't feel quite as strong anymore over time. And so over time you're able to build up and do
0: do more and more of the ERP. Um, ERP, exposure, re, re, response e- prevention. Yeah. Exposure response prevention. I was interested that you said that the OCD really spiked when you were sort of stretched emotionally with the baby, being up, less sleep, um, postpartum. And so I would guess, you know, just... That this maybe happens for others, that their OCD is there, but when they're not operating sort of on all four, all cylinders, that then it's more likely to keep into their lives. And it's not a spiritual weakness, it's it's just, you. I, I don't know the right vocabulary, you're more vulnerable if it's there, kind of below the surface. So I like you sharing that part, listeners may resonate with that. Um, yeah, just keep, how did things get better? Um, just this time between these 20 years of dealing with this and where you are now.
1: Yeah. So this went on for a really long time that things were really, really rough. And, you know, to be honest, I was just barely holding it together. And that's why people could tell that, you know, interact interacted with me on certain subjects, could tell that something was, was wrong. Um, I was in a deep, deep, Deep depression. Um, I was spending hours and hours every day on on my rituals throughout the day, um, and I was just—I mean, it was miserable. I was just anxious uh-huh. and depressed, um, and OCD had really just taken over my life. I went from OCD being being always there to just being front and center. Um, uh-huh. And to be honest, in order for things to get better, which they have, um, but in order for that to happen, I had to hit rock bottom. And what that looked like for me is I had an experience. This was when my daughter was probably about a year and a half, so this has been going on for for about a year and a half. Um, and I had an experience where someone that I know said some stuff to me. They were concerned by what they saw with my obsessiveness about my baby's sleep schedule, and I had inconvenienced them by by my obsessiveness about the sleep schedule. Um, and they expressed that they were that something had to change that I was causing my, my husband and my baby to, you know, to suffer because of, of what I was, what I was doing and experiencing. Um, And because I was so low already, I took that to heart where I believed that my husband and baby, I was causing them to suffer and that my husband and baby would be better off without me in their lives. So at that point I became suicidal and it was the lowest point I ever hit, but I, I wanted to relieve my poor husband and baby from the struggle that I was bringing into their lives. So I believed they'd be better off if, if I wasn't there. And I, I never did act on that, but for a while, I really, I really wanted to, I really thought it would be best for them
0: thanks for having the courage to share that. There's maybe others that feel that way right now that um their family or others would be better off without them here, or somehow our presence is messing up other people's lives. so that's something that I've learned Some people have concluded that's not true. Talk about is that o c d or is it kind of a combination of everything coming together and sort of this vortex or whatever the perfect storm of multiple things going on that led you to to feel like that was um and i realized some people actually believe that everybody would be better off without them so talk more about that yeah
1: i think that's an excellent analogy it was a vortex of the perfect storm the depression combined with the anxiety combined with you know what the messages i was getting from people around me and a specific experience. It you know, I look back now and I have compassion for who I was, you know, this was 8 years ago. Um and I understand how I got to that point, but I also can say so powerfully that that belief that I had that my husband and daughter would be better off without me was such a complete lie. But that's what that's what my brain was telling me. And I'm I'm grateful, so grateful that I didn't, you know, that I didn't act on that. But I would say to anybody who's in that position, like, what you're thinking now, like, it's it's so impossible to believe that that couldn't be true. But like, things things change, things change.
0: What got you out of that space, Rebecca?
1: So it was a process, um, but at that point, I decided that I needed to see a therapist. And um, I, I sought one out, it took some looking around to find the right one, as it often does. But I was able to find one that was a good fit. And that specialized in OCD. And she actually had OCD herself, which was kind of a cool, cool. a cool thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. So she, of course, was not in a deep, dark place with it. Had done done work to to come to a good place with it, but still had OCD because OCD doesn't go away, but it can it can lessen to a to an extent where it's even considered subclinical um, with if you put the work in and and over time. But like, it was. and, and I, I, I would add, besides just saying, if you put the work in, I'm sure there's people who put so much work in and it doesn't feel like it's ever going to get to that point. I think there's other factors as well, but, um, she, she was at a point in her life where she was really healthy, but she still had OCD and she would keep up the, the exposure and response prevention every day, just kind of practice with it. So she could keep herself in a healthy place. Um, and she really helped me to give myself some compassion to kind of realize that, you know, I'm I'm human and I'm dealing with something really, really hard. And it's okay. And she helped me to realize that I, you know, I had gifts to bring to the world. And I, you know, it really helped me a lot. Um, she also referred me to a psychiatrist who could prescribe medication. And I had been on a medication from the time I was 12 until that point. Um but it didn't really seem to be helping me much, and that's the strange thing I've learned is like some medications help different people, um, and than others do. And um, the psychiatrist prescribed a new medication, and when I went on the medication, it was night and day with the depression. Um, I guess it was just the right one for me when it came to depression, and it helped me immediately to be less depressed. Um, I I would say that of course at this point my daughter was a year and a half, so I was getting some sleep at this point. Um, a lot more sleep than I had for the first year of her life. Um, but that helped me a ton. So the combination of the medication and, and the therapy was very powerful. Also, I had been getting priesthood blessings from my husband throughout this time. And I I was at a point where I couldn't, I had a hard time connecting with the spirit. because Not because I was doing anything wrong, but just because the depression and anxiety were so powerful in my mind. It made it hard to to feel that and to feel the love of of my heavenly father. Um, but my husband gave me some priesthood blessings and I still have them written down in my journal notes from those because it was so meaningful. Yeah. It was so meaningful to me to get these messages from my heavenly father that I couldn't receive myself. And one of the priesthood blessings, um, he was inspired to share some things that I should do to kind of help me get out of this place. And this was after, you know, I don't know why the Lord didn't give me this advice a long time before and this was after, you know, I was going through this for a year and a half. Um, but the things I was, I was told to do were, were service, finding a way so I could get outside myself and serve, um, which I did. I started volunteering at a pregnancy resource clinic to help women in unplanned pregnancies. And I love. It, I fell in love with those women and was able to help there. Um, also, exercise, which helps my body and my brain, um, release those endorphins and get healthier. Um, also, um, what we called hour alone time, which is where I would go out for an hour once a week and just pray, ponder, read the scriptures. This was the first time in my life where I started asking questions and really seeking for the answers that I that I was hoping to find. Um, and then. Um, getting the sleep that I needed, which we would go on, as you said beforehand, to have two more kids. And what we found in the future is we knew that I could not handle my OCD when I was not getting sleep. And so with kids two and three, my husband got up with the babies. I would sleep in a different room. He would get up with them. It was hard for me at first because I thought a good mom has to breastfeed and, you know, I'm going to breastfeed. But I learned that, I could breastfeed during the day, but in order for the health of myself, well, my husband, our whole family, we had to make a decision that was right for us. And for us, I could breastfeed during the day. He would bottle feed at night. I would get the sleep I needed. And oh my gosh, when I get seven and a half to eight hours of uninterrupted sleep, I can handle this. You know, it, it makes all the difference in the world.
0: That's a great segment. I there's a couple of things I just love in there. I. Um, I love you being honest. You couldn't feel the spirit and realizing that wasn't a spiritual weakness. And I think listeners need to hear that. I felt that at times in my life and and never had any tools to navigate that. That, that might just be my emotion. That the chemicals needed in my body to feel emotion and feel the spirit and feel right were lacking. And I love that's the way where medication can replace those missing chemicals to help us feel right. And that allows us to be more likely to feel the spirit. So I, I recognize that on one level, you knew you weren't doing anything wrong to feel the spirit, but you still couldn't feel it. And I just think we have to have compassion for ourselves and for others that open up. They can't feel the spirit and, and not create shame in our culture for people that say, I don't feel the spirit anymore. <laughs> and our, my normal reaction would be to give them a checklist of things to feel the spirit. And this isn't a spiritual weakness. It's a symptom of an emotional challenge that is a a spiritual symptom, so to speak, but it's not solved by spiritual tools. I love the role of your husband in giving those priesthood blessings. Um, And he's probably scratching his head at times wondering, how do I help my wife? I think a lot of us at times are deeply committed, but not always sure what to do. Um, so I'd love you to give advice for spouses because I'm sure there were some stressful days in your marriage and some great days but um and your good husband probably has would have some thoughts to share too also but what advice do you give for family or spouses trying to help someone with OCD
1: Well, that's a good question yeah I mean those those early years I mean we were we we're practically newlyweds anyways right. <laughs> you know, our baby was born and we've been married for a year. Um, And so we're going through this crazy time. you know, He knew I had OCD when we got married. I'd shared that with him when we were dating, but neither of us knew to what extent that was going to affect things Uh, when we had our first baby. Neither of us had any idea. Um, And it's hard. I guess the things that come to mind are know that things can get better. You know, those dark days, they were some really dark days, but you know, honestly, it strengthened our relationship. Looking back, I realized that we're That's stronger cool. and closer because we went through that together. Um, he was so loving and supportive and patient. I mean, I'm sure there were times I was very frustrating. <laughs> I have no fault of my own, but OCD just does that. Um, so just I would say, you know, try to be patient. Seek out your own self-care. You know, take care of yourself while you're helping your loved one um, and try to talk and ask questions and, you know, try to understand the best that you can and support your spouse in getting and getting the professional help that they need. Because when it comes to something like this, it's not enough, you know, the exercise, the hour alone, time of service, like those were important pieces, but none of it would have worked if I hadn't gone the therapy and the medication because, you know, these psychological issues, they need that that professional help. And so my husband supported me and said, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch our our daughter, you go to therapy. You know, uh, he supported me in those things. And that was really important.
0: It's a beautiful love story. Um, I love, yeah. I mean, this is, um, I would think, you know, there's deeper communication ability. Um, My guest last night, last night's podcast talked about emotional intelligence and I would guess there's just, better emotional intelligence about relationships and about communication, about mental health issues. That's part of your marriage that now brings you together closer. And I think you have young kids right now, reasonably young kids, but I would guess that this journey and it's, you know, you're already very aware of this issue, issue, not being a negative thing, just what it is, um, as you're parenting your own kids and other people and just be in a position to um, help your kids and they may never have OCD, but they may have something else. And you'll just, um also like where your husband and your spouse, you know, you recognize that sometimes when we kneel across the altar in our temple marriage, as we talk rightly so about there's three people in our marriage, there's each other and there's the savior and we're kind of going in this covenant. But sometimes I just recognize we need other people in our lives that can help us. And a therapist is one of those um, for many wonderful couples, and I think you you're teaching this, but I think we can't be each other's therapist. We can be each other's spouse. We can be each other's confident best friend. But there's people sometimes outside of our marriage that have expertise medical. We go to a doctor for a broken arm. We so I think normalizing therapy. Um, we need Jesus and a therapist. We need Jesus and a doctor to fix our broken arms. Is part of what you're bravely doing here, just by sharing your story and destigmatizing OCD and an emotional illness, if I'm using the right vocabulary. Um, I just want to mention, just because it's, I've been writing about this um, in another d- book I'm doing about improving LDS culture, and I'm talking about suicide in this chapter and. The Joyner model of suicidality is one that a few of my guests have mentioned, J-O-I-N-E-R listeners. And he he has three things here that are predictors of suicide. And one is the thing that um, Rebecca talked about is perceived burdenedness. And it's the view that one's existence burdens family, friends, or society. This view produces the idea that my death will be worth more than my life. I'm sorry to read this. My death will be more than my life to family, friends, and society. Um, And it's just a fatal, potentially fatal misperception. Um, The second one is low belonging and social alienation, a low sense of belonging um, and one being alienated from others, not integral into the family circle of friends or valued. And the third one is just an acquired ability to enact lethal self-injury. And I do that in the context of a little bit for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, but the model applies to all of us. Um, Were those other ones, those other, just any thoughts on that as you're hearing that, um, Rebecca, and how that applied to your situation?
1: Yeah, um, I'm grateful that I had the, you know, the people around me, especially my husband, you know, I was able to have that connection and not feel completely alone um and i also had other people in my life that that cared about me and you know even if they didn't know exactly what was going on or didn't you know understand that they they cared about me um i think something that that this experience has been a gift for me in is that i get what it's like to be in that kind of a low low place and so for my friends who are LGBTQ who have many of them have been in that place or my friends who have had other things that have led them to that, that dark place. Like I even though our experiences of what how we got there are different, like I can relate to that. I know what that's like. And and that's been a, a powerful thing.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I'm feeling pain and it, it just gives you more empathy. You see Um, tell us more about your story. How are things now? More about how things got better, um, advice you give to other people that are in the thick of this. You've done some of that already.
1: Yeah. So, um, I've been so blessed. I, things are so much better now. It kind of, it's been cool for me to prepare for this interview because I've been looking back on what things were like back then compared to what they're like now. And it's like, oh my gosh, that feels miraculous. (laughs) The changes that are taking place. And, you know, I don't want to downplay OCD. It's still something I deal with every single day. Um, my husband compares it to running a marathon with a hundred pound backpack. And so every day I run my marathon and I still have that hundred pound backpack and man, is it heavy? But when I'm able to get the sleep I need, when I have therapy, which now, you know, during the dark time, I had to do therapy every week. Now I do it like once or twice a month. I talk to my therapist, and it just kind of helps keep me up and going. Um, I still take medication every day. Um, when I do those things to take care of myself, I can carry that backpack. It's hard, but I I can do it, and I can do the all the normal things. You know, I I'm a mom to my three children right now. We're doing online school with COVID. Um, you know, I'm able to serve in ways that are meaningful to me. Um, I'm able to do those things because I'm taking care of myself. I'm just carrying that backpack, um, and I've come to the point where you know I still have OCD in my life, and one of the things that where it manifests itself the most right now is something called just right OCD or perfectionism OCD. Um, I'm very concerned because I have three little kids. I my brain makes me have anxiety about something, and right now my brain's making me have anxiety about making sure that I. Accomplish everything that I need to to take care of my kids and their schedules and school and and all that stuff. I'll make sure I don't miss anything from my schedule. Um, and so I tend to have a lot of men, mostly mental rituals, going through and checking and counting and making sure I I audit all the I's and crossed all the T's. But one thing that's cool is I've gotten to the point with alpha the therapy that I I don't really do rechecking. You know, it used to be that I would check something and. I would immediately have thought again, I needed to recheck and then I'd recheck and I'd get stuck in the spiral. But I'm at the point now where I can do the check. And then sometimes the thought comes back in to recheck, but I'm able to label that. No, that's OCD.
0: Cool.
1: I'm moving on what's my cool. life. And yeah. And it's just freed things up so much. Um, you know, something else I, that's hard for me as part of the just right OCD is like, writing. I'm perfectionist about writing. I'm scared that I'm gonna, you know, not write it perfectly. Um and my therapist has been helping me try to learn to do that. Um but like they're not things that take over my life anymore because I have the mental power and the training with a the therapist to be able to, you know, recognize that and stop that before it goes too far and and to just live with it. And it's part of me, it's part of who I am. To be honest, my biggest challenge at this point in my life is shame. It's looking back on, you know, it's, I think a lot of it is not speaking up, not being authentic about what my experience is and and has been. Um, and feeling alone in that. I think I have a need to be real with people, to connect with people authentically. So that's part of the reason I wanted to do this is I want to say, you know what, this is, this is part of me. and. I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to be ashamed anymore that I'm different and weird. Like, you know, most people don't know I have OCD. Like they they don't know that I don't come across as weird, I don't think, but like, I want people to know this part of me. And I also have been learning that I always saw OCD as completely a negative thing. Um, and, you know, it's called a disorder and there's good reason for that. I mean, you can see in my story ways in which it was absolutely a negative thing and led me to a very dark place. But I'm also learning that there are, there's another side to that. There's the disability side, but there's also, uh, what, um, Frank King, I believe his name is. I saw this Ted talk they did where he talked about how mental illness is also combined with kind of a superpower. (laughs) Like, you know, I am really detail oriented. I'm really good with Numbers and details and organization because I want everything to be perfect and just right. And if I can use that in a way that's positive instead of in the way that, you know, sometimes the negative ways OCD wants me to use it, it can be used for good. I've also, OCD has brought me tremendous empathy. I care about everybody and their story and wanting to be there for them. Um, I care about marginalized groups. I care about individuals. And I, I think that's given me a superpower as well. And I actually am right now looking at grad schools because I want to be able to use those superpowers to be able to help people. I um, originally was looking at a master's of social work. I'm now also looking at the possibility of a master's of public health, but using it in social areas. So like doing research, possibly um, epidemiology, which I thought was only used for medical research, but it's actually used also in areas like LGBTQ research. And um, women's health internationally for women that are struggling with um, like repercussions of child care where they don't have the medical help um, with, with issues that come about from that. So I want to do research and do data collection and analysis using that part of me that's very data driven, very detail oriented in order to help these groups that I'm so passionate about being able to help.
0: That's cool. I wish our listeners could see you right now, Rebecca, because you are just beaming and glowing. And when you talk about the future and and this journey and how you're taking these gifts, there's no shame in your eyes and in your vision and who you are and your ability now to use this superpower um, to not only see, but um, I think it gives you ability to see these marginalized groups, understand the pain, because you felt pain, you felt shame and just want to lift their burden. And it's, uh, and, uh, it's really courageous and really cool. You want to go to graduate school. Um, there might be naysayers saying, well, you've got three kids, you should be focused. And I just love that you're following personal revelation for you um, and that this is something in your future. And I love the reason you want to do this is when you talked about why it's all about helping other people. And I love that you're, you and your husband are thinking out the dots sometimes. When you said, you know, as you were discussing having more kids, it sounds like you figured out, well, he's, you know, this is your husband saying, I'm going to get up at night so you can sleep. And that's what I call sort of thinking outside the dots. Um, sometimes we have these really firm roles as as men and women in a marriage. And I just love that part. And I'm assuming that part of your marriage and sort of thinking out the dots allows you to do things like, you know, be great parents and have separate and have careers and have things and just recognize that you can do that. And some of the narrative we've created around shame potentially for women that want to get a graduate degree with three kids at home. I hope you don't feel any of that because I would guess if you came on the podcast in 10 or 20 years, and talked about how what that graduate degree meant for you and what it meant for your family and others, you would be so glad that you opened the door to this. And even though it's kind of Elder Bednar's fog talk where he just talks about you get a feeling and you kind of take one step in the fog and you see you see the next step or two. I love that because that's how a lot of personal revelation comes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, any thoughts that came out of what I just said that you want to share? You know, add on to or go with.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So I love what you're talking about. Um, my husband and I are definitely a team. And you know, when we were talking about what to do with future kids and how we were going to make sure I didn't go back into that deep dark hole the next time we had a kid, um, you know, we tried to look at what our strengths were. And my husband has a strength, thank goodness, that he doesn't need as much sleep as the average person, certainly not as much as me. And when he is woken up, he can go right back to sleep. Like two, like as soon as his head hits the pillow, he is out. Um, and he can make up lost sleep in a 10 minute nap on the floor. Like I kid you not, he's, he's got a superpower with that. Um, and so we were able to look at what our strengths were and figure out how to make it work as a team. Same thing now. I mean, he just finished his MBA. So he just did his grad school. Now we're looking at mine. And you know, it's kind of making it work as a family. Like my my youngest is three. She'll actually be four next month. And so we're looking at, you know, once she's in, I might do a, maybe a class here or there, but I certainly won't go, be doing full-time school yet until she's, she'll, she's in kindergarten. But, you know, that's not that far away. But it's amazing what you talked about. The um, Julie Hanks calls it aspirational shame and the shame yeah. some of us women in the church have about aspiring and wanting to, to do these great things. Um, and I definitely had that when I was younger, I actually, my first, um, my original declared major as an 18 year old BYU student was psychology. But I knew that I was going to be a stay at home mom. I believed that was, you know, what I was supposed to do as a woman and it's something beautiful and absolutely wonderful. And I'm grateful for it, but I got the message somehow that that was the only thing I was allowed to do in order to be righteous. And so I was committed to that. Um, and so people would tell me when I'd say, Hey, my, my bachelor's, you know, it's going to be, um, going to be psychology. Everybody would tell me, well, you know, you have to go on and get like a PhD in order to do anything with that. And I went, Oh, well, I'm not going to be able to do that because I'm going to be home with the kids. So I guess I shouldn't do psychology. So I actually changed my major largely because of that and did education. And now it kind of feels full circle because now I've learned over the years through personal study, prayer, the spirit, through my husband's encouragement, through so many things, I've learned that there are ways to do both. I mean, I can be a good mom and I can aspire. And in fact, it's been so cool to see my kids because they're watching me, you know, study, you know, what school I want to go to. Do I want to learn epidemiology or biostatistics? You know, what areas do I want to use those in to help, help what marginalized groups? And my kids will ask me questions about it. You know, mom, have you figured out what school you're going to yet? Mom, do you want to do this? And I can see their brains going, oh, I can do this too. You know, my daughter's going, oh, when I grow up, I can do anything I feel led by the spirit to do and that I want to do. So it's been, it's just been really cool.
0: That's really cool. I love that term, um, Dr. Julie Hanks who coincidentally her niece married our son this summer so I've known her and we've yes. interacted but it was fun to see her at the wedding events um but I love that term aspirational shame and I, as a male I've never obviously there was no trade-off between if I got married and it, you know it just but I just recognize for women LDS women and maybe women of other faiths we've created that shame um and i think that it's really healthy that we're hopefully getting over that and and people like you that you know are helpful for that and i love the impact that you have on your kids i do you have sons or just three girls i
1: have i have two girls and one boy so it's I, girl boy girl
0: i think it's good for your girls and your son i think it's actually healthy for your son to see um that in his mom And perhaps to have just better, you know, I think it influences the type of woman he wants to marry and just this whole relationship with women potentially to have you as this role model, the key role model woman in his life. So I think there's even some neat, wonderful things for your son. Um, And I've really been grateful for my wife and the things that she's done, not only in our home, but in our community that I think have been good for all of us. Um I love destigmatizing seeing a therapist I'm, I'm writing a chapter in my book and on um, this book about improving LDS culture, and one of the chapters is destigmatizing, talking about emotional illness and I write here in the book. I re, you know I've been to a therapist twice in my life, and once was while I was serving as a YSA bishop. I still remember the shame I felt wondering if, the y, if what the YSAs would think if their own bishop was so weak that he was seeing a therapist. I remember being glad my therapist's office was in a different area of town so no one would see me. <laughs> oh. Since my release, I've concluded I should have felt no shame for my emotional health changes, challenges. They were not a spiritual weakness. And my diagnosis, at least in my case, because it wasn't a major diagnosis, it was dis- dis- dystemia. <laughs> Um, did not ma- impact my ability to serve the members of the ward. If I had realized this, I might have been re- more receptive to spiritual promptings to open up about my own emotional health in appropriate situations to help others walking this road. And just sort of vulnerability sometimes breeds um, the ability to really help somebody. So um, but it's taken people like you to bravely step forward and, Elder Holland's talk has been very impactful for me. Although it was given before my assignment, it didn't have enough of an impact for me to consider opening up to others the way he did in general conference and the way you're doing right now. I think Satan's role in emotional illness is non-existent. He doesn't cause emotional illness, but I think he can create shame. So I don't know how you feel about that, but I've always felt one of Satan's greatest tools is shame. And to isolate us from others, to isolate us from therapists, to conclude this is a spiritual weakness, to conclude we don't measure up as a spouse. And I don't know if all that comes from Satan or from the emotional illness itself, um, but that any thoughts on that?
1: I like that. I think that's really true that, you know, the Lord wants us to find joy. And that doesn't mean that everything in life is going to be easy, but I think when we have those feelings of of shame and, and discouragement that keep us from connecting with others, because we feel like we're not worthy to connect with them, you know, that certainly isn't a feeling that comes from the Lord. And it's, you know, it, the more that we can connect with others, I think, and the, and the more that we, that we can share our stories with each other, whatever those stories are, I think the more we, we honestly, we create Zion and we, are acting as the children of God that that our heavenly parents would have us be. And I think it's just beautiful when we can do that.
0: That's great. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Rebecca?
1: Just one last thing. And that is that I'm an open book. Like I would love nothing more if somebody reached out to me, email me, you know, and started a conversation. You know, if if you have OCD, if you know somebody who does, or even if you don't and you want to learn more, like I, I'm so happy to share. I'm so happy to learn from you and connect. So please, please reach out to me.
0: That's cool. How can people find you?
1: Um, I'll give you my email address. Um, first, I'll say it, then I'll spell it. It's D S C at yahoo.com. So that's R-E-B-E-K-A-H-D-S-C at yahoo.com.
0: And are you on social media?
1: I am. I'm on Facebook. Um, I have a kind of long name there, but it's Rebecca Dawn Simpson-Bart.
0: Okay. And for our listeners, um, we'll put um, we'll tag Rebecca' Facebook account so you can find it. And we'll put Rebecca's email address in the podcast. I guess people call them show notes. <laughs> I'm just learning these things after 300 plus episodes or the podcast description. So, Um, please reach out. If you're thinking right now, Rebecca could help me and I'd love to talk to her. I think you may not be adding to Rebecca's load or um, sometimes it's really helpful for people that have walked this road to continue to connect with people. It helps them. It doesn't bring them back or add to their burden. So don't down the road and say, oh, Rebecca is too busy. I think she just gave you a green light. So if you feel an impression to Dr. Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca,
1: Nothing
0: Um, would make me happier. And I'm just, you know, so glad you've reached out, Rebecca, on behalf of all of our listeners. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your journey. This is just a beautiful story. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.